Well, good morning, everyone. <laughs> it's good to be with you. I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Luke chapter 19 and pray with me as we get started here this morning. Lord God, we thank you again for today. I thank you for the reminder of just how good you are to us and that you are our cornerstone. You're our firm foundation. You're the one in whom we can build our lives. And Lord, there's so many times when we look for life outside of you. And so this morning, God, we ask that you would fill us, that you would remind us of who you are and help us know you more and hear from you this morning, God. In your name, amen. I want you to take a moment and imagine what it was like on that first Palm Sunday. They were walking down the hill from a town called Bethany, a place where Jesus had recently risen, a guy named Lazarus from the dead. In fact, in the book of John, it tells us that the crowds there, that they were all telling about Jesus. <laughs> Not yet, sorry. They're missing their cue. So, that they were remembering what Jesus had done and that they were all telling, in fact, the Pharisees even said, the whole world is going after him. That the whole world was listening and believing in who this Messiah was. And so as they came down the hill from Bethany and they saw the stones of Jerusalem glistening in the morning light, walking down the hill, people began to grab palm branches they began to throw them on the ground and wave them in the air, a sign of triumph. And people were singing psalms that they often sung during the Passover week that were to anticipate and think about a coming Messiah. And so those psalms began rolling off their lips as they sang, Hosanna, Hosanna, God save us. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. And the anticipation was growing and building and building. You could feel it in the air. Those who were following Jesus were caught up in the excitement and thought, truly, he is the one. We've seen him perform the miracles. We've seen him love the sinner. We've seen him take care of the outcast. Truly, this is the one we've been waiting for. Those who were opposed to Jesus could also feel it building. They also were in the moment and they saw that Perhaps things were getting out of control at this point. Here they were now openly declaring and proclaiming that this Jesus is no longer just a rabbi known by many, but he is really the one, he is the Messiah. And so the fear built in them of what were they going to do about this Jesus. And as the crowds began to build, and as then the anticipation and the energy in the air increased, there was this feeling among everyone there that truly something different was happening. Truly something new was going on. That this was not, yeah, this is now your cue. All right. <laughs> and this was not just another rabbi. This was not just another someone proclaiming to be Messiah, but this was one worth celebrating and worshiping. This was one in that could, had the power to get the whole city astir. Maybe it was like the energy of a bunch of kids and what they bring as they celebrated the Messiah. 
So let's imagine what it would have been like that day when the one you truly saw changing lives entered into Jerusalem triumphantly. The crowds didn't just sit there casually like a church congregation in San Diego might, but they celebrated and they clapped along and they enjoyed as they celebrated Jesus. As I was saying, imagine (laughs) what that was like. Now, maybe without the techno music, but there was a joy in the air. Let us not read a story like this as Jesus comes into the city and think of it as if it's this moment where they just kind of stood by watching passively. That this was the one whose very life or very works and words were changing and transforming lives. And everyone sensed it. There was this joy in the place. Truly, the one they had been waiting for. Their Messiah was entering Jerusalem that day. In Luke chapter 19, I want to take you to the story and to read it as we continue our series in this series called Crossroads. It's a journey to Easter. And as we told you at the very beginning of the series, we kind of went a little bit of Tarantino on you and going back to the beginning. We already did this whole week after this, but you have to celebrate Palm Sunday on Palm Sunday. But this is how it all began. This whole series that we've been going through started with this event. It started with an event after Jesus had had, we believe, about three years of public ministry, three years of healing the sick, of, of teaching people what it looked like to live in the kingdom of God. And so the rumors that he was the Messiah were growing and his own disciples had proclaimed it. They believed it. And his disciples were more than just the twelve. It was a large crowd of people who believed that he was Messiah, and even many of the religious leaders sensed it and believed it as well, and that's why they were afraid, because this wasn't a Messiah like they had anticipated. So in Luke chapter 19, we find, starting in verse 28, where our story takes us today. It says, when Jesus had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany, At the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples, and he said, go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a young donkey tied there, on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Say this, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent left and found it just as he told them. As they were untying the young donkey, its owners said to them, why are you untying this donkey? The Lord needs it, they said. And they brought it to Jesus. And after throwing their clothes on the donkey, they helped Jesus get on it. He was going along, and they were spreading out their clothes on the road. Now he came near the path down the Mount of Olives, and the whole crowd of disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles they had seen. They were singing, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. And some of the Pharisees from the crowd told him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered to them, I tell you, if they were to keep silent, the stones would cry out. I want to stop right there for a moment here today. 
and again, talk you through what's going on. So Jesus was on this journey, and we saw just soon before this was on the road from Galilee, went down to a city called Jericho, and now it says going up to Jerusalem. From Jericho is the city that's known as the lowest city elevation on earth, and they go up the, the hill to Jerusalem, which is an elevation of about 5,000 feet or more, and, and they get to the top of the hill. There's a city called, a little town really, villages called Bethany and Bethpage, where some of his best friends lived. And as they le- left there heading into Jerusalem, from the top of the hill of Mount of Olives, by then the crowds were proclaiming, because this was Passover week, It was a week when you'd be thinking of the Messiah. Remember this whole series we've been talking about the significance of this week. It was to remember what it meant to be in slavery and to be set free by God in an anticipation that there'll be a new Passover, a new Exodus, that God will reveal his Messiah, his anointed one, on Passover to tell the world that there will be a new deliverance for his people. So they're already thinking about a Messiah. Jesus has already performed many miracles. They already have heard that many people believe that he is the one. They're singing psalms that's called part of uh, our book of psalms. There's a section called the Hallel, the, the praises that often are sung during Passover week, Psalm 113 through 118. And in it, we find one of them says, Hosanna, God save us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. It's proclaiming and singing about one day God will send his Messiah and the one who comes in the name of the Lord is the one who will save us. Those songs are already on their minds. So as, Jeru- as Jesus now enters, is heading towards Jerusalem, they're already singing him. And they're looking at him and saying, truly, this is the one we've been waiting for. Now in our story, we've, we find a few unique details. He says, head up to the village up ahead and you'll find a donkey, actually a colt, the foal of a donkey, a young donkey that no one's ever ridden on before will be there, untie it, and when the owners ask you about it, just say the Lord needs it. A little bizarre. Some would say that this is Jesus demonstrating his authority. Here's a prophecy that he's over this moment. It could be that it was, again, as we saw earlier in the story, a prearranged agreement. Either way, what we know is that this was going to be a fulfillment of scripture. As he went and asked, they went and asked for this donkey. Now it said their owners, so this was probably a, a group of people who were poor. Several of them needed to own it together. It wasn't one wealthy person. And they had a young donkey and they said, the Lord needs it. No one's ever ridden on it before. That, it, it, that tells us that this was an unbroken animal. I don't know if any of you kind of grew up country, um, but know what an unbroken animal is that's never been ridden before. Uh, this would be an animal that has not yet been trained to carry people on it. Um, I had the privilege of working on farms uh, when I, uh, my grandparents' farm every summer growing up, and we as kids would often try to ride unbroken animals. Have you ever tried to ride a cow before? I mean, I'm sure Dale has. He's from West Virginia. So, you know, it's... (laughs) But, you know, that's not an animal that knows how to carry a person. And and so we would often have this game when you'd see them lying on the ground as a junior high boy. This is great fun. And you would sneak up on the cow and jump on the back and hang on and see how long you could stay on top of the cow. Uh, It's... You know, that when you're a junior high boy, that's called having fun on a farm. So, but let me tell you, they do not appreciate 
the whole 110 pounds that I was packing all muscle at that age. And they often, we didn't often last long on the top of a cow. One summer, my cousin, she bought a horse. She lived on the farm and she bought a horse and this was an unbroken horse. And the game for the summer was who would dare to try to get on this horse. And I remember when it was my turn to try and we didn't even have a saddle for it because it wouldn't stand long enough to put a saddle on it. And we would be on top of a fence and get it close enough to you and you'd jump on the horse and grab its mane and go for a ride. We were junior high boys. That's called being very intelligent at that time. So yes, I understand what an unbroken animal was like. So Jesus riding on it, again, here's him exercising his authority even over creation. An unlikely source, this was an untrained animal. But it also reminds us in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, there was a prophecy here. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. You see, there was this prophecy in Zechariah chapter 9 that said, One day the Messiah will enter Jerusalem. See, he will come to you. Your king will come to you riding on a donkey. And Jesus says, I am going to use this moment to fulfill prophecy and to proclaim who I really am. We find here something unique about Jesus as king. And this is the thing that we see in Palm Sunday as Jesus is a confrontational king. He is the confrontational king. He's willing to come to the crowds and now for years he said, let's hold off on proclaiming who I am. There was times when he would heal someone and say, tell no one about this because my time has not yet come. But now entering Jerusalem, he's saying my time has come. And I'm going to fulfill this prophecy and ride into Jerusalem and now you are going to have to make a decision about me. He's confronting not only his disciples who believed who he was, but he's confronting those who opposed him. And in this moment, he's no longer making an ambiguous proclamation of who he was. In this moment, he was saying, make no mistake, I am on this young donkey who no one has ever ridden on before in fulfillment of prophecy so you can know that I agree that I am the Messiah, your king, coming to you. And now you have to make a choice. Will you accept me or reject me? See, this wasn't just a subtle statement Jesus was making. It was bold. It was bold. Now, you may be asking the question that I often ask when I read this. Why a donkey? I mean, seriously, the Messiah? Why is the Messiah coming into Jerusalem on a donkey? What kind of king is that? Well, we know in the ancient world there's something about this. See, if you would come into a king when they would go into a city that they conquered, if it was done in the name of war or they were coming to conquer it through military might, they would ride in on a horse. When they rode in on a donkey, which often happened with kings, it was a peaceful sign. It was saying, I come to bring peace, not to bring war. And so the Messiah here was saying, Jesus is coming, and God's prophecy was, the king that's coming is coming 
And he is victorious, make no mistake. But he's coming in a way different than you might think. He's coming to make peace with the people. Yet what the people of Israel wanted was they wanted war. They wanted the Romans to be removed. They wanted them to be utterly destroyed. But the Messiah came and said, I will come and bring peace. Now what is the peace that he was bringing? There's a peace that comes to what he was about to do on the cross that later that week. But this was a choice that they were going to have to make. Will you accept this king or reject him? It was a very confrontational choice. He was bringing it to them. A very clear statement. As he went on with the procession, we found here after he entered in, or the Pharisees even said, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Hey, they are singing songs to you and praising you as if you are God. Rebuke them and tell them to be quiet. What did Jesus say? If they were to keep silent, even the stones would cry out again, quoting scripture, saying that all creation can't help but to praise its God, its creator. If I tell them to be quiet, something else is going to worship because you can't help when you're confronted with the true king of the universe but to respond in either worship or rejection. Jesus here was giving them a choice. As the story went on, verse 41 says, as Jesus approached, he saw the city. So you come from the top of the city and my wife and, and my kids and I had the privilege when we were living there to participate in a Palm Sunday processional, which I've got to tell you is one of the best things you can do if you're ever going to travel and visit Israel. I, I feel like Palm Sunday was probably the most uh, exciting of all the celebrations from, for as a Christian celebrating Jesus. Palm Sunday was just this joyous event where there's up to 10,000 people marching together, waving palm branches as we walked down this hill. But you start at the top of Mount of Olives, and you can then see the city. And as they, you started heading down the hill, it says in verse 41, as Jesus approached and saw the city, he wept for it, saying, if you knew this day what, what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from your eyes. For the days will come when your enemies will build a barricade around you. They'll surround you. They'll hem you in on every side. They'll crush you and your children among you to the ground. They'll not leave one stone on another in your midst because you did not recognize the time when God visited, to you, visited you. Isn't this kind of an interesting statement in the middle of this celebration? See, they're celebrating that he's the king and now our king, the confrontational king who's demanding a response when he sees the city, he sees Jerusalem and would be looking directly at the temple where people would go to worship him. He saw it and his heart broke. His heart broke because his very mission that he came for was to bring peace with all people was to finally have peace between God and man once and for all, to actually eliminate the temple sacrificial system and say that is just temporary. That never will measure up. That will never fully remove your sins. There's a veil between you and God and I am now breaking that barrier and he weeps because he saw so many whose eyes would be veiled even after his death and resurrection. And he saw them. And 
The crowds in Jerusalem on Passover week often were 10 times or more the usual population. The city would have been packed with people. And our confrontational king actually now, his heart breaks and he weeps. He says, if you would have just known, if you could have seen that I'm the one who would truly bring you peace. And then he gives his own little prophecy and says the days are coming when all of this is going to be torn to the ground. Actually, in the year 70 AD, the Romans sieged, had a siege on uh, Jerusalem and burned it. They destroyed the temple. They took the temple uh, utensils and everything that was part of their worship and they hauled them off as the plunder. We even know that a few uh, years later, at about 135 AD, that the city was even destroyed greater, in greater extent, where all the stones were torn down. To this day, if you visit Jerusalem, you can go outside of the Temple Mount and you find these stones that are tens of thousands of pounds that are toppled and thrown off of where once was the Temple Mount. They're just littered on the ground outside of there. The prophecy Jesus had was fulfilled saying, I break for you because you're missing the point of what really will bring you peace. You're putting all your hope in this building. You're putting all your hope in your religion. You're putting all your hope in this system that was set up to point you to the very fact that you need me. And this system is going to be toppled and destroyed. You won't even be able to go to the temple anymore. So his heart breaks. But he continues his procession into the city, and this is where we find the next part of him. He went then, walks right into the temple, and he began to throw out those who were selling. They were buying and selling uh, pigeons and and animals used for sacrifice, and the, the way we understand it is that they were marking up the prices because they said, hey, if you want to worship God, you need these animals, and so they were really taking advantage of people who were then desperate, especially at now at Passover week. They would mark up their prices, and Jesus had this holy uh, anger towards what they were doing, even putting another barrier through worship to worship. And it said, and it, Jesus says in verse 46, it's written, my house will be a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of thieves. And every day he was in the temple, and the chief priests, the scribes, the leaders of the people were looking for a way to kill him. They couldn't find a way to do it because all the people were captivated by what they heard. See, Jesus was a different kind of king as well. We said he was a confrontational king. We also found here that he was a conquering king. He came in and he was bringing a victory that was very different than what anyone was anticipating or expecting. First, he weeps over the fact that they were putting all their hope in their system And then he had this righteous anger over the fact that they were taking advantage of people and the way they worshiped. And all along, he knew what was going to happen later that week. Imagine what that must have been like for Jesus. Everything he was doing that week, he knew that in just a few days that he would be nailed to a cross for the very people who were against him. That he'd be nailed to the cross even for the very people who were with him. He'd be nailed to the cross for the people who were trying to find hope in their sacrificial system. He would be nailed to the cross for the people who were thieves and robbers in his own temple. 
It was for all of them. Can you imagine what that week must have been like? How many of times would he have just said, guys, just, you know, just wait till Friday. Actually, just wait till Sunday. You'll get it. You'll understand. You'll see. Just wait. All week he must have been conflicted. As we went on with the series, we saw that he went in and even celebrated Passover with his disciples and saw them arguing about who would be the greatest. Just think what was going through his mind. Guys, just wait. How many things are you worried about? How many things do you think are the real deal, but you're missing out on what this whole point is? Imagine what it must be like for him with us as we are a week away from celebrating Easter. I wonder how many of us, it just becomes very routine. We have a king who's demanding a response of us, and for many, myself included, often it's just part of the routine. I wonder if his heart breaks when he looks at us and says, if you only knew what really would bring you peace. If you only knew what really was the ways I'm bringing. If you only understood my message. If you only saw and could grasp what that was when I kneeled down to love those who were on the outside. When I had compassion on those who never felt compassion before. When I forgave the sinners who everybody knew didn't deserve it. If only you could know that that's my heart for you. If only you can know that's my heart for your kids, for your parents, for your neighbors who annoy you. We moved recently. I don't have any neighbors who annoy me now. We have great neighbors. So if you're listening, you're great neighbors. So, What is the heart of God when he looks at us? Does he look at Seacoast and he, every time he says, man, they get it, great. Or does he look at us and say, they're looking for a different kind of king. They study about me week after week. They want me to be a king. That, that wasn't why I came. I came to set them free. He's a conquering king, but not always conquering in a way that we think about it. Sometimes we think of this conquering king should be a king who just gives us what we want. Do it our way. I love how Chuck Colson writes and he talks about the kingdom of God and the kingdom that Jesus brought. Chuck Colson actually was a political prisoner. Many of you know him from his days where he uh, kind of got caught up in some stuff with Nixon back in the day and spent some time in prison and had his life transformed by Christ. But he talks about the kingdom of God and he says this, I have it for you. He says the kingdom of God is a kingdom of paradox where through the ugly defeat of a cross, a holy God is utterly glorified. Victory comes through defeat. Healing came through brokenness. We find ourselves through losing self. How many of us, when we think of the Easter story, we want to focus just on the victory of it, but we forget that Jesus had to lose it all so that we could have victory? How many of us, when we think of a Christian life, we think, it's what will, how will this make my life so much better, more prosperous, more joy-filled? When Jesus says, if you truly want to find yourself, you need to lose yourself. It's a kingdom filled with paradox. 
How many of us, we say, if only everyone else could live as righteously as I do, then this church would be better. When Jesus says, no, you don't get it. I came for the broken, the hurting, those who don't get it. We want to be a church of people who love and embrace those who are struggling and trying to find their way on the journey. We want to be transformed by who Christ is, but God is our judge, not us. He's brought a kingdom of paradox. The very place where he calls us to be righteous is also a place where those who are unrighteous should be welcomed in, where they can feel at home as, they, as God seeks them out and transforms their lives. See, this is a conquering king who came into Jerusalem that day, but he conquered in a way that was so different than what people were expecting. I wonder, who is your king today? Who is your king? See, the king who will just keep giving you what you want. Or a king who's actually giving you what you need. As we embrace this Easter story and even enter into the final week, I want to challenge you this week to maybe start each day and ask God to reveal himself in a new way to you. This year, uh, many times my wife and I, we've kind of participated in this season of Lent. And uh, Lent is, some of you, many of you have kind of grown up in a Catholic tradition or maybe Lutheran tradition or traditions that celebrate Lent. Um, in, in churches like Seacoast, this hasn't been a part of our history, but many of you have participated in it. And really, Lent is a season of taking about 40 days leading up to Easter where you give up something. And it's not a sacrifice to somehow please God, but it's intended to share in the sufferings with Christ. It's intended to really remind us of what he went through for you and for me. And I don't know if you've ever actually participated in Lent. I, I don't recommend you do it just so for, some people do it for health benefits. They're like, oh, cool, Lent. I'm going to give up, you know, I'm going to give up eating bad food for 40 days just for Jesus, you know, as some sort of, but really we want to do something where you give it up and, and sacrifice for that 40 days and you kind of feel the pain. Uh, when I was living in Israel, I had a friend from the Eastern Orthodox tradition and they literally fasted for 40 days and I could see him at the beginning of it just look healthy and by the end he was skinny. I was thinking, how can you do this? And his response was always, it's to remind us what Christ did for us, to share in the suffering. So this year, uh, our family and our life group, we kind of talked about giving up stuff for Lent. And it is funny how as soon as you say you're going to give something up, that all of a sudden that is what you want. Is it not? It's just, it's like, you know, I, and that's why we always joke. I said, I should have given up exercise because I'd hit the gym every day then. Be like, you know what I need right now is to work out. But it's funny how little things that you maybe aren't even a big deal, you start to crave them when you don't have them. How many things we think we want, and then every time I want that, to say, God, remind me of your suffering, what you went through for me. This is, a little, this is stupid. These are little things. I'm not even going to throw anyone under the bus from my life group, but I would like to because there's some funny stories of how we all failed at this. But, but I want to challenge you even in this last week before Easter. So some of you, can you do a five-day Lent? Maybe. <laughs> but can you use this week to identify in the sufferings of Christ, to focus on the paradox of the kingdom of God? 
what are the things that you keep saying, God, you, I want you to give this to me. I want you to give me more prosperity. I want you to give me just all those things that we ask God and we expect him to fill us with. Why don't we say, God, we thank you for what we have, the good and the bad this week. Help us identify with what you have done for us. Lord, help us to think of Easter in a new way this year. You are a confrontational king. You demand a response. And you are a conquering king. You won the victory that day. But this week, can we be people who really lean in and see Easter not as just Easter bunnies and peeps? (laughs) Get up early. We celebrate together. We go have brunch. That's all fun. But what if we come to that day and say, Jesus, you wept over your city. You had a righteous anger over those who were making a way to you more difficult. They were putting stumbling blocks in front of those who needed you most. Lord, give us that heart for our community. Give us that passion for you, that door into who you are, that open access that happened on the cross. Lord, this week, would you allow our church to see you as the conquering king and to be all about who you are for our city, our community. Let us not put stumbling blocks in front of anyone who wants to come to you. Let us not miss the point and have you weep over us because we've made you someone you're not. And maybe for some of you here this morning, you've just seen Jesus as a nice king He is a nice king. He's a good king. But he demands a response. I wonder if there's some of you here today who've just been keeping him at a distance. You sing about him. You listen to others maybe sing. You read about him. You like him. But have you responded to him? Let's let this week leading into Easter be different. I don't know what that will be for you. I don't know what that's going to look like for me. But let's be a church who every day, would you pray every morning and lean in and say, God, we want the real Jesus. We want to celebrate you, our King, this week. We're going to respond with a couple songs of worship. I want to invite the worship team to make their way back up. And this is one of those Sundays where we start off with this great celebration with our kids. And I I want us to remember the joy of that. But remember that that was a great joy because they believed in who Jesus really was and what he was doing. They were people who were changed. They were responding to their king. So we're going to respond with just a couple songs here. Let's respond to this king who conquered, who gave it all for us here in this place. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you again for this morning. I thank you for the joy of seeing the celebration of the kids. I thank you, Lord, for the joy of even seeing you enter Jerusalem and what that must have been like. Lord, I thank you that, Lord, you demanded a response. That you no longer allowed people to sit on the outside and just have no response to you, but you invited everyone to proclaim you as Messiah or to reject you. And Lord, this morning, we want to proclaim that you are our King. 
And Lord, we, we admit we don't always get this right. We admit that, Lord, we misunderstand you quite often. But I ask now, Lord, in this place that the best that we can, we want to respond to you as our Lord and our King. The one who went to the, cro <clears throat> the cross for us. And so, Lord, this morning, if there's anyone in here who hasn't responded to you, would you draw their hearts to you now? And if that is you, and this morning you want to respond to Jesus, that you want to admit that he is Lord, you want to proclaim him as king in your life for the first time, even if you have questions, would you pray this prayer with me? Just under the quietness of your own heart, just pray with me this prayer and just pray, Lord Jesus, I believe in you. I confess that you are Lord and King. And though I have many questions, and I will stumble and fall, Lord, I ask that you will forgive me for my sins today, my sins yesterday, and my sins tomorrow. Would you be my King and transform my life? And for many of us in here, maybe... We pray that prayer, maybe not for the first time, but for another time of saying, Lord, we just forgive us. We need your forgiveness. So let's be people who, whatever it is, let's respond to him now. Jesus, we give you this time in your name. Amen. I want to invite you as we worship here. If you feel like standing, you may stand. If you want to kneel, you can kneel. If you want to raise your hands, let's just let God move. We have a couple songs that we're going to respond to you, but let's respond knowing that he came in triumphantly and his triumph that week was an agonizing death on the cross for you and for me. But then Sunday came and he conquered it all once and for all. So that is the king that we worship here this morning. So let's respond.